Father, we ask now that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. Father, we come into this place here today from so many different spaces in our own life. And some of us are in dark places. Some of us are very joyful because of the time of year. And others of us can't even believe we're sitting in church today. And we just ask God that wherever you might find us today, that you would speak that you would make us attentive to the voice that you would want to bring to us. And we pray, God, that you would fill us afresh today with hope and with joy in you. And we ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So today, as has already been mentioned, is the fourth Sunday of Advent. And the word Advent, for some of you, if you might be new to Christianity, uh, that word simply means arrival or coming. And during the season of Advent, the church invites us to pause and to give more attention to the longings of our own heart for that great day of God's arrival, his coming among us. And so it's a season where we attend to, we acknowledge to those deep, oftentimes latent desires in our hearts and our lives for something more. You know, uh, several years ago now, uh, there was a Catholic philosopher whose name is Charles Taylor, and he wrote a very influential and important book entitled uh, A Secular Age. And one of his goals in this book was to, to describe what it feels like to inhabit a secular age. And so he says, you know, we, we, we live in an increasingly, uh, in, in an age that's increasingly marked by uh, an absence of mystery and transcendence where we, 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 we spend so much just focused on the material matter and nothing more. And so he writes in this book about what it, it feels like to inhabit uh, a secular age. And, uh, and he uses this great, this great phrase. He, he coins all these great little phrases in the book to kind of describe things. But, but he uses this great phrase to describe a secular age. And it's the phrase, uh, the malaise of imminence. And so he says that, um, that this age we inhabit has created a malaise of imminence. And he said, look, the secular imagination and worldview, it's stuck in the imminent frame, the idea that there's no transcendence or mystery or God or ultimate meaning, that all there is is matter and nothing more. And he says, uh, it, it leaves you feeling with a, with a sense of emptiness, like the, the world, this reality seems so flat. And, and, and he says, especially in more affluent societies like our own, that are, are so marked by consumerism, people just find themselves feeling like there's got to be something more. You know, life has got to have some deeper, grander meaning. And, uh, and, and I think oftentimes in this time of year, we can find ourselves feeling that way as well. And uh, I, I can think about uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas, you know, Charlie Brown walking around complaining that Christmas has become so commercialized, you know, even his dog has gone commercial, he says at one point. And, um, and, and he just feels like there's got to be something more. Can't anyone tell me what the true meaning of Christmas is, he says, you know. And, uh, and maybe you felt this as well during this time of year, maybe especially when you've watched Elf again, maybe for the fifth or sixth time with Will Ferrell. And, uh, you know, Elf, of course, deals with a very serious issue. And uh, there's a family that's fallen apart, and there's a a father that's neglecting a child, and there's all these big, big serious issues. But the answer it gives to the big problems seems so trite. 
And, uh, and, and you can watch this and you just feel kind of unsatisfied and, and you can think there's got to be something more. And you remember um, what, what Buddy the Elf's answer is to kind of the world's great problems? Remember what he told uh, his coworker, the, the girl who was working in the, the toy store? He said this, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. Do you guys remember that line? The best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. And then the movie ends with, you know, here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus. And you just think, is that it? Like there's got to be something more. You know, that's not enough, you know. And, and Advent is this season where we recognize this longing for something more. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about different longings we have that we're trying to tap into. And so week one, we talked about a longing for peace. And then uh, we talked about a longing for a leader. And then last year, we talked about that longing for home. And we said that that, that longing that we have for, for, for that something that feels like was lost, that longing for something more. It is no neurotic fancy, but as C.S. Lewis says, it is the truest index of our real condition. You were indeed made for something more, and so that longing makes sense. And and today we're gonna look at one more longing. Uh, We're gonna look at the longing for salvation. We could say the longing for deliverance. And uh, it's captured in Isaiah chapter 25, and listen how it phrases it in Isaiah 25. This is a a prophet that is speaking to Israel in her long night of exile, in in a season of darkness. He writes this, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God, we have waited for him. And that word waited, it's, it's a hopeful waiting. It's a waiting that's marked by longing. He's saying we have waited for God. We are longing for God. And what is he waiting for? What is he longing for? Look at what the text says. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. He says we have waited for God's salvation for his deliverance. We've waited for God to save us, to finally deliver us. Now, let's know what what kind of salvation, what kind of deliverance are they waiting for? What what is he talking about here? You know, throughout the vast majority of the Old Testament, and actually for most of our lives, uh, I I think in, in periods of crisis, we cry out for salvation and deliverance and help, don't we? I mean, if you are in a crisis in your marriage, you cry out for help. If, if you haven't studied for the final exam, but you know everything depends upon it, the scholarship depends on it, you cry out for salvation, you know? And, and if you get news that the, the, the tumor is malignant, you, you cry out for help and salvation. And, 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 and throughout Israel's history, she, she cries out a lot for salvation, for help like we do. And when she was in uh, Egyptian bondage, she cried out for help and salvation. And when she was afflicted by her neighbors, the Canaanites, and they would oppress her and enslave her, she would cry out for salvation and deliverance. And Israel gives testimony to her different uh, leaders, like King David, crying out for personal deliverance in his own life. You know, uh, he, 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 um, I, um, Psalm 40 I waited patiently for the Lord. 
And I cried out to him out of the miry pit and out of my, my miry clay, and, and he delivered me. And what, it, what, what are these cries for? It is a cry for a temporal deliverance from one's most immediate crisis and threat, right? A temporary deliverance from your most pressing and immediate crisis and threat. You know, it's been said that there are no foxhole atheists. And I think it's true, you know, it's probably true there are no uh, finals week atheists and there are no, my job's under threat and I'm gonna be, uh, I have another review this week, atheists. No, we all cry out in periods of crisis and pain and difficulty in our life. And, and so for the vast majority of times when you, when you hear the talk about salvation and crying for deliverance and help throughout the Old Testament, it's almost always a cry for a temporal deliverance from their most immediate and pressing crisis, almost everywhere, except for a few cases in the Old Testament, there is a cry for something more, a cry not just for temporal deliverance, but for ultimate and final deliverance. And not just from their most pressing, their most pressing current threat, but, but instead a cry for salvation from the ultimate threat the, that, that all humans face. And Isaiah 25, he is celebrating, he is speaking about waiting for that kind of salvation, for final, for ultimate salvation and deliverance. And I want you to see what he, how, he, how he develops this idea underneath three headings. Number one, uh, I want to talk to you about the universal problem. Second, the shocking remedy. And thirdly, the generous invitation. Now, we're just going to pay close attention to the ancient prophet. You know, uh, salvation throughout the Bible is spoken of in a variety of different ways. And sometimes it's more theological, more propositional. But Isaiah is a poet. And what he says here is poetic, and it is compelling, and it's beautiful, and it, grip, it grips us and look at how he describes it. Number one, I want you to notice how he frames in poetic language the universal problem. And he puts it like this. He said, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And then he goes on and he says, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations, he will swallow up death forever. And I want you just to notice these uh, two phrases, the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all the nations. And here what he sees, he's doing is he's describing in a very poetic way the universal problem that threatens all of us. And he describes it as a, as a veil or a shroud. And, and the image is of a dead body that is covered in a sheet or a shroud. You know, in the ancient world, uh, before they would prepare the body for burial, they would oftentimes cover it in a shroud, in a sheet. And, and the prophet here says that the human race is under the shroud and under the sheet of death. Isn't that an evocative picture of the human condition? You know, our family, uh, every year we do uh, our version of a historic 
practice called the Jesse tree. And we make our Christmas tree and all of its ornaments uh, tell the story of salvation. And so each day leading up to Christmas, we open a little ornament and it tells another piece of the story of salvation that leads us up to Jesus. And on the first couple days, we, we open ornaments of, of the earth. And then on the day when we talk about the human fall into sin, uh, we, we have a little black cloth that we put over the earth that is a pictorial, metaphorical, symbolic representation of the plight that all of us are under. We are all afflicted by the problem, by the threat, by the fear of death, aren't we? Now, when the Bible speaks about death, and when it's talking about death here, we need to be clear, it's not simply talking about that moment when your heart stops beating. It's not simply the cessation of life. In the biblical imagination, death is an active power and force, almost like a living, breathing enemy that is coming after you. And, um, and, and you can feel like this if, if, you, if you have a loved one and you're watching something seize them and take life away from them, it just feels like an enemy has grabbed a hold of them and is sucking life out of them. And death in the biblical imagination is an active, powerful force. And death in the biblical imagination also has many faces. You know, we oftentimes think about death as simply the cessation of our biological life, but in the biblical story, death is broader and more comprehensive than that. It's not just referring to the death or the cessation of biological life, it oftentimes refers to different kinds of deaths that you can know in your life. Or, or you, could, you could put it like this, you know, in Edgar Allan Poe's uh, famous poem about the raven. Do you remember this one? And the, the, the phrase that's repeated from the mouth of the raven as the raven reflects on human life is the word nevermore, nevermore. And death has an irreversible nature to it, a nevermore nature. Once Death has set in, nevermore, it's gone. It is irreversible. And in the biblical story, the original command came to that early couple, on the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. And you know, when they ate that fruit, they didn't die physically, not immediately, but there was a death. There was a death to their old way of knowing and being in the world. They were cast out of Eden, and they no longer could go back. It was irreversible. They could no longer go back to that space where they were vulnerable and naked and knew no shame. They could no longer go back to the cool of the day when they would walk with God in the garden. They could no longer go back to that place where they lived solely with each other without blame shifting, without hiding, without accusations. And life outside of the garden became very, very hard. And, and there was jealousy that s s destroyed human relationships and hum human community. And there were siblings that did violence to other siblings outside of the garden. They couldn't go back. There was a death. Death has many faces. And I wonder as you think about your own life, 
You know, are, are there ways in which you can imagine, you can think about your own life and the different deaths you have known? And, and for some, it, it might be a death of your integrity or of your dignity, and you feel like you lost it because you blew it, because you gave in and, 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 and you fell into some deception or some addiction or, or, or some dark, heinous thing that you, and, and there are words that you've spoken and there are deeds that you've done and they are irreversible. You cannot take them back. And your former way of being has died. And, and, and so he's describing here a shroud of death that afflicts the entire human race. And I think when he uses this language of shroud and sheet, it's not simply speaking about the problem of death. I, I think he's also talking about those feelings and, and those experiences that death evokes in us, namely of fear and anxiety and regret. You know, death is an awful force that moves into our life and it leaves in its wake trauma and pain and heartache. And, and, and so he describes the, this, this darkness that's afflicted the human race. And, and he goes on and he talks not only about a, a covering that's cast over all the peoples, he also talks about tears on every face. He says, the Lord God will wipe away tears from every face. And I just think about that, that evocative poetic phrase, tears on every face. And what it spoke to me about is the fact that every face has its unique experience of tears, doesn't it? I mean, if we would go under the surface, if we would bring the camera into bathrooms or into where you've cried in your pillow at night or, or into different moments in your own life where you've wept, and you've wept over those losses, you've wept over the deaths, you've wept over the irreversibles, the irreversible stuff that you've done, the irreversible stuff that's been done to you, the irreversible pains, the deaths of, of loved ones, people that were a part of your life and they're no longer there and you've wept over that and there is a unique pain and a unique trauma that goes with death. And it's interesting, he speaks here about tears and tears, of course, is a physiological reaction to deep pain, isn't it? You know, there, there's a book that came out recently by a, a psychologist uh, called The Body Keeps Score. And, and the, the thesis in there is that we carry trauma and pain in our bodies, in our very anatomy and physiology. And so it comes to express through our bodies, our anatomy and our physiology through our tears, the unique, particular, specific tears you've shed. And so he speaks about this universal problem of death that leaves in its wake trauma and pain and tears, but also disgrace. He speaks about the disgrace of his people. You know, this world of pain and death and darkness, it, it not only makes us feel like victims, and not only do we weep over the wrongs that's been done for, uh, against us and the wrongs that, that we've done, the ways we've hurt, the words we've spoken that we can't unsay, the deeds we've done that we cannot undo, we not only weep over all of that, but it also carries with it a shame, a disgrace. You know, when it speaks here about it, the disgrace that has gone over God's people, you know, 
I, I think it, it's talking about the, the, the sin and the, the idolatry that shamed the people of Israel that ultimately would lead to their exile. You know, this is an honor-shame culture. One of the worst things you could ever imagine is to be disgraced. Your goal in life would be to save face and to present before other people. And, and I think one of the heartaches that, that we humans wrestle with that I think is pretty universal is in those moments where we have not been able to save face and you lost it in front of somebody you didn't want to lose it in front of and you feel ashamed and somebody discovered something about you you didn't want discovered. You know, something was, was brought into light that you wanted to keep in the darkness and there's shame associated with that. And so the, the prophet in his poetic imagination and brilliance is describing the universal human condition as one of death and of tears and of disgrace. This is what it feels like to inhabit a broken, fallen world. He says this is the universal problem that afflicts us all. But I want you to notice he, he, doesn't, he doesn't tell us about this simply to depress us. You know, this is a world of death and tears and shame. Merry Christmas, you know. <laughs> now, he, he, he doesn't, he doesn't tell, he's not trying to depress us. He writes this to bring us hope. And notice after describing the universal problem, he talks to us about the shocking remedy to the problem of death and tears and shame. And listen how he describes it. I, I, I love this passage. It is this brilliant, evocative, you know, picture of what God has done uh, to deal with the world's biggest problems. And he says this, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. You know, it's as if, he, it's as if God knows one of the best remedies to any problem, it is a good meal, right? is a well-cooked steak and a nice glass of wine. And this is what he provides, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. It's interesting, it describes this party, a dinner party that God's gonna throw. And there's this magnificent feast that's put before us on the table. A little bit more, some of you are like, tell me a little bit more about that meat and about that wine, well, in a minute. But I want you to see that there's a, a, a special course on offer on this night. Uh, at the dinner table, a special meal is brought out and it is reserved for God and God alone. And strangely, it's a meal that none of us would ever wanna eat. And listen to what it says. And he will swallow up on this mountain. There's a big dinner party and on this mountain, God himself is gonna participate in the feast. He's gonna do some eating and some chewing and some swallowing. And what is it that he is gonna swallow up? What is the main course that God himself consumes? He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up, what is it, Steve? Death forever. He will swallow up death. Now, I was thinking about this. You know, all of us eat dead things, right? But you know, you don't want to eat death. You want to eat that thing cooked when it's fresh. You don't want it when it's petrifying, when it stinks when it is just nasty and it is just an untouchable. And here is what God says he himself 
will consume. And I, I love it. It is this very metaphorical way of describing the reality that God himself steps into his creation. He invades his world and he vanquishes and he destroys and he eliminates death and he releases his creation. He releases humanity from its death grip and he sets us free. He consumes and he destroys death and again, it's just so evocative. He ingests it, he chews it, he swallows it, he eliminates it. I don't know, maybe he spits it out after he's done, but he crushes the thing. And it is this violent description of God going after the active, powerful agent, the great enemy of humanity, death, in all of its many faces. He takes it on, he chews it up, he spits it out. But he doesn't only do that. After he does that, he turns to his brokenhearted, tear-stained people. He turns to you and me. He, he approaches each and every face. And it says, the Lord God will wipe away tears from every face. You know, I've, I've must have read this text a couple dozen times, but it never struck me until this week just how intimate this act is. How many people have you allowed to come close enough to put their fingers on your face and wipe away your tears? Maybe mom, maybe, maybe a husband or wife, you know, maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend in those little heartbreak moments. But here, the infinite and eternal one, the ground of being, enters in and comes close to his human creatures. And, and it's interesting, it, there, there's nothing general and, and vague about this. You know, he speaks earlier about all peoples and all nations, but he doesn't simply say all tears. He says he will wipe all tears from every face. God knows the unique and the specific ways in which you have suffered. He knows the unique and special trauma that you carry in your body. He knows what you have experienced and he comes close to where each of us has, have experienced pain from death in our own life and he comes near and he wipes away those tears. And he not only vanquishes death and chews it up and spits it out and he not only walks over and enters in intimately with us and wipes away our tears but he says he removes he removes the disgrace. He undoes what we thought could never be undone. He takes those who have been brought low and ashamed and he lifts them up and he removes, utterly removes the shame. He removes the disgrace from his people. He takes it away from all of the earth for the Lord has spoken. And I wanna just pause and I wanna just notice who is the active agent in salvation and deliverance? You know, it's interesting. I was reading a book this last week by a philosopher named Luc Ferry, and he's written this really brilliant, wonderful introduction to philosophy called A Brief History of Ideas. I'd recommend it if you want, you know, a brief intro to philosophy. 
but it, it's pretty fascinating. You know, in this book, um, he, he opens up by, uh, in an introductory chapter, talking about the nature of philosophy. And he's asked the question, what is philosophy in its essence? And he explores different ways in which you can answer this question. Now, keep in mind, this is a general introduction. This is not a fringe guy who's, this is a guy who's written a general, it's one of the most popular level intros to philosophy. He says in his estimation, if you were to boil philosophy down to its essence and core, he said philosophy at its core is a quest for salvation. He said all of the great philosophers, they've wrestled, if you scratch below the surface, uh, uh, they, they're asking the question, how do we live in light of death? How do we live and escape from the fear of death and the regret of death? How do we live well? He says that is what philosophers are dealing with. And he said the difference between philosophy and religion is he says the philosophers appeal simply to human resources to address that question where he says religion has to appeal to God for the answer for salvation. And listen, let me just state unequivocally, salvation and deliverance, according to scripture, comes solely by the grace and the power of the true and living God. And there is no other who can deliver and rescue us from our most pressing, universal, destructive enemies. There is none who can finally and ultimately rescue you from death or from the fear of death or from the tears that you shed in light of death or for the shame and the disgrace you've brought. There is one and only one. It is the true and the living God. God, by his grace, has acted in this world. God himself takes it upon God's self to vanquish and destroy the great enemies that have us in the grip. And here's the good news of Christmas. You know, I, I think about in, in this, what is Isaiah giving to us? He's giving to us poetry about salvation. But when you get to the Gospels, you don't get poetry, you get history. You get the very incarnation. You get the very invasion of God, the entry of God into human history. And what happens when God becomes flesh and dwells among us? He comes in ultimately to the immortal one bears mortality so that in his mortality he might die and break the death hold of grip on creation so that we might be brought to share in his immortal infinite life. In Christ he comes in and he enters into our shame and disgrace, even the disgrace in that culture, the shame of an unwed mother not being afraid to identify with. He enters into our shame so that he might lift us out of it and bring us honor and let us share in his glory. And he enters into our tears and our pain. He enters into trauma so that he might break trauma ultimately and its hold on our life and say, trauma does not have the last word on your life. Tears do not have the final word. Eternal joy, infinite joy, can have the final say over your life. And so he enters into all of this so that he might carry us out, so that he might destroy death and remove tears and take away our disgrace. And we'll just close with this. 
The text also not only tells us about this universal problem and the shocking remedy in Christ, but our text tells us about the generous invitation. I mean, here is the beauty of this text. Listen, I I love the way this passage begins. It begins with God throwing a dinner party. And who's invited to the party? I mean, this is a, you know, I don't know, you know, how familiar you are with Christianity or whether or not you've recently kind of started coming to a church, but oftentimes we imagine God to be a cosmic killjoy whose primary interest in life is to give you rules that will be a burden to you, but you might as well keep them because if you don't, you're gonna suffer eternal torment in hell, and that's kind of what God is like. Listen, look at the picture of God in this image of eternal salvation. Eternal salvation is pictured as a magnificent dinner party the biggest barbecue you've ever seen, uh, the, the, the most full vats of wine with the best wine you've ever tasted. And he throws this magnificent party. Now, now don't, don't misunderstand. If you're a vegan or maybe a teetotaler, don't, don't, you're not gonna go hungry at the party. <coughs> what is this food? This was the food of royalty. It was the food of the affluent. It was, the, who, who got the fattest choicest pieces of meat? Who could afford the best wine? Who eats at Fleming's? Not me. You know, who, 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 who gets, you know, it's, it's, it's the affluent, it's the well-to-do, or maybe it's you, maybe once a year on the anniversary or something, you know, but not every night, and yet here's the party, and, and, and who is invited to share in this exuberant feast? It is all people's. It is all nations, it is every face. Every individual is given this invitation. As if God is saying, look, in this world, there are people who are left out. Left out of healing, left out of joy, left only in their sorrow and pain, left only by themselves to deal with their, with, with their dark story of trauma. Like, you're left out. And, 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 and there are people that are left out of all of the riches and all of the affluence and all of the goodness and all of the fatness. But it's, just, it's as if in this text, God is saying, not in my kingdom. When my kingdom is established on this earth, the offer goes out to all peoples and all nations. I am no respecter of persons. There is no human that is so low that they cannot be invited. There is no one who is too high that is too good. Everyone is invited. I give my, this is a feast I am making for all people. And you know, the feast is broken in. Jesus launched a meal that he gave his disciples, the Lord's Supper. And he says every week, when you come and share in this, he says, you are getting a foretaste. You are being given welcome, a little glimpse in the kingdom welcome, this kingdom of hospitality and generosity and joy. You know, the invitation is for everyone, but it doesn't mean that everyone will accept the invitation. You have got to respond. You have got to choose that I will, like the language in this text, I I will be a person who will wait and hope in God. I will not succumb, I will not give in to the despair and the darkness and the hate and the abuse. I will not say that has the final and the most defining word over everything. Instead, I will be a person of hope 
and I will choose hope and trust in this God. And even in this life, as we wait for the great ultimate final salvation to break in, we can begin to have foretastes of it and begin to experience little releases, not fully, always coexisting with tears and with the pain of death and with the reality of disgrace and shame that we can oftentimes be haunted by. And yet, nonetheless, those things are only a shadow the sun is rising, and in, in the day when the sun finally arises, and all the darkness will pass away, and all things will be made new. And that is very, very, very good news. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now as people who need deliverance. We need salvation. We need salvation and help and deliverance from our worst self and from our stupid mistakes, from our dark addictions. God, we need freedom and we need deliverance from that darkness that's been inflicted upon us by others. And God, we just pray that the good news that we have in Jesus, the good news of Christmas, the good news of Isaiah 25, God, would break into our hearts. And that this season, even in the midst of darkness and tears, God, that we might experience pockets of joy to break out. And would you give us the faith and hope to truly believe that at the end, it is love and joy that win and that all of the darkness and all of the pain will ultimately be driven away. God, enable us to hope, enable us with greater faith and trust in you. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.